You are listening to the Academy Revival Podcast. This is Drew, resident of the Montevilla neighborhood and big fan of the Academy Theater, here with the person responsible for um, spearheading revival programming at Academy Doorman. What's up? Drew, Drew, Drew. <laughs> here we are doing our review of The Boogeyman. From 1980, so deep cut pick for October. Um, played it on 35 millimeter and had the new v- restoration from Vinegar Syndrome. I got a chance to see both screenings of the 35 because I was doing the projection. Obviously, I was yep. there, and then I also came in and saw uh, the new restoration. So I'm really excited to talk about the differences, to go through it with you. Um, the uh, audience reactions were very different at each screening. Uh, but why don't you start off with just your initial take? You were at the second 35 millimeter screening. How'd it go? Yeah. So cool. This is definitely the first time I've gotten the opportunity to see a movie projected on film at Academy. Yeah. That's yeah, awesome. Yeah. It's, um, so there's just obviously something more, unpredictable in a good and bad way more um magical about film projection so um my initial impression was just that like right away the the sound blew me away i i know you'd kind of um teased how great the score was but the the heavy synth soundtrack was incredible the technicolor lighting which was definitely more washed out in the film print than the digital Absolutely. restoration that i also saw at home um the movie is is streaming on uh, the shutter subscription service so you can compare well if you were lucky enough to see it at academy you can compare <laughs> the the experiences um but i was also just kind of enthralled obviously by the um weird surreal plot of this movie it starts out i know this is like a um recurring theme but it starts out like a de palma movie with some um uh, seedy sexually deviant behavior happening some kids watching through a window and then um, that scene's so crazy yeah so i don't know i know the projector was a little off for the very first scene when you saw it um and you said you got to rewatch some of it yep but to me, that scene, the first time you see it, you're like, whoa, wait, what is this movie? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I, especially on the Saturday screening, when I, you know, it's a, it's a slap in the face in a weird way, but it also sets the tone for the movie as being a lot more scary than yeah. I think some people are expecting. I some think people... a kid gets slapped in the face, literally. <laughs> so <laughs> I think so. Yeah. yeah, I think you're totally right about that. But I think a lot of people came to these screenings uh, with sort of the Dream Warriors expectation mm. that they were thinking this was going to be a very campy, 
Uh, this is going to be a fun time and stuff. And then we get that scene. And, it, and you know, yeah. I think the scene starts with that synth descending, the black screen. And, it, it, you know, you're just like, whoa, whoa, what's going on? I, and I just love that opening and, and the, the theme. You know, it, it's very evocative of um, Jack Nietzsche again. We just talked about him for hardcore, his score for The Exorcist. So that's something that I think in talk about slasher soundtracks, you know, we're always talking about the synth and stuff. But really, it, this isn't just Carpenter that everything is springing from. Jack Nietzsche, oh, yeah. he's the one who did this staccato. He was the he's the OG <laughs> guy who came up with those staccato horror um, yeah. soundtrack. The, um, so not vibe. to not to tangent too far off of the matter at hand here, but obviously in November um, or October, I mean, I watched The Exorcist again. Oh, you did, nice. and the when the tubular bells. Uh, yeah. theme comes in it's a tracking shot very similar to the carpenter you know halloween theme while jamie lee is walking through the suburban neighborhoods except it's set in georgetown and the extra it's it's the very very um similar scene so and- uh, as much as carpenter popularized it, it it he didn't completely pioneer it i, I agree there Absolutely. So we're getting kind of a ripoff of a ripoff of sure. a ripoff to what is a ripoff? What is originality? It's kind of a beautiful thing and beautiful question. But just and just talking about the score for a second, because you mentioned it, and yep. it's, it's right at the beginning. You know, it's forefront there. Um, you know, I've always thought this soundtrack was super strong, much stronger than maybe the movie dessert. Like, this is a top-notch slasher synth soundtrack. And it's up there to me, and it always sort of competes with Halloween 3 for me with my favorite synth soundtrack Hmm. from the 80s. And I have a lot. I love synth soundtracks. I I could talk about them for, you know, just have an old podcast where I talk about over like Suspiria and and some of the Suspiria 70s. Okay. And I I don't really just categorize that as a synthesizer soundtrack. So to me, that is. Sure, because it's a full. Yeah, they're a band. Yeah. They have a, a bunch of different. So this is like just a couple guys with a bunch of synths messing around. Yeah. So that's and uh, so, but what I I see this directly as Tim Krogh, who's used to UCLA student with his friends, you know, going to town on some synths. Um, he's really trying to do an answer to The Exorcist and Halloween specifically. He's trying to outdo Carpenter, and he's giving it his all. And what I hear though in Halloween Three is. John Carpenter sort of responding to Tim Croak. So there's some of that, Mm. you know, the down sort of spiraling synth sounds at the very beginning. Mm -hmm. Those are pretty new. You know, you don't get a ton. You get a little of that in the original Halloween soundtrack, but that's all over Halloween 3. So I don't know if it's really Ho-Worth. See, but they they both saw the boogeyman. You know, when this opened Labor Day weekend in 1980, it was a smash hit. Um, we'll talk more about the box office and stuff. But Howarth, who does the soundtrack with Carpenter um, for Halloween two, three, and then he does four by himself. You know, he's he's hearing Tim Krogh here, and he's seeing the gauntlet being thrown down. So I kind of feel like Halloween three is sort of the next evolution um, in a call and response to the boogeyman and i've never really heard anybody talk about it like that i'll I'll definitely have to rewatch halloween 3 through that lens um every year kind of the countdown to halloween song (laughs) reemerges, but that's not the part of the halloween 3 score that you're talking about like the lucky shamrock commercial obviously (laughs) silver shamrock yeah yeah um (laughs) 
yeah, Howarth really goes to town. He played it at the Hollywood ten years ago. It was awesome, nice. and that was kind of my go-to favorite uh, synth soundtrack uh, for many, many years. But I, I've always loved the Boogeyman, and now just hearing that Boogeyman deep guttural synth, those dark dun, 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 through the thirty-five millimeter prints. Oh yeah, to me. I love the Halloween 3 soundtrack, but the simplicity, it's just tubular bells with some deep, dark synth. And that's all I really want. That's right. all I really want. And he goes there in a way that Carpenter does in Prince of Darkness, but it's that's, that's many years later. And the Prince of Darkness theme is good, but... I don't know if it's as good as the Boogeyman, man. That is that is a great, and and the rest of the soundtrack is cool too. But I'm just just talking about that intro theme yep. and the first scene there. So that's the soundtrack. I could talk about it for forever. <laughs> yeah. But that scene, that first scene with the trauma incident, you know, that is a dark scene. He's getting chained. He's getting tied up to the bed. Yep. Everybody first like kind of wakes up in the audience. They're like, whoa, wait, I thought we were watching Dream Warriors. What's going on? This this kid's getting tied up. Yeah. So the the there's a brother-sister duo and their mom has a new boyfriend or a new romantic partner of, of, of some kind. Is that right? She's sleeping with this guy. Yeah. Yeah. She, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, you don't have to and beat she likes the bush. to put stockings on. People's yeah. Head yeah. While and her kids are they're, watching. They're drinking. There's like, it's meant to be portrayed as pretty unhealthy of a, of a situation and dangerous of a situation for the kids. So obviously, yeah. When a kid gets tied up and his sister has to, um, rescue him by, you know, cutting him free with a knife he then takes the knife and stabs to death the the guy who his mom is sleeping with. And so this is the origin of the main characters that will follow as adults. Trauma. And yeah, exactly. And like the brother now doesn't talk anymore. The sister has um you know her own relationship issues because of, you know, what she's witnessed throughout her life presumably. So it's just like a perfect way to, I mean, like the opening of Halloween, Absolutely. but for different, but you know, darker. I mean, yeah, in Halloween people aren't getting tied up to the bed. I mean, it's it's some weird, messed up yeah. stuff going on in this movie, and it kind of goes as dark as Silent Night, Deadly Night, which sure. is a little bit later of a slasher and maybe hearkening to the Boogeyman a little bit. It's it's hard to know who's using what ideas and everything, and that one might be a little bit more of a classier slasher, even you know, boogie- <laughs> barely, yeah. <laughs> um, but and I love that movie too. Yeah. But I think that we're you know pinpointing that a crucial component of the slasher in the golden age here is having that upfront traumatic scene we were talking um before we recorded about uh, fangoria the legendary magazine from the 80s and now they've um revived themselves for the last couple years and i recently read an article in there that was trying to classify slashers as does the killer have a motive 
or not? Is it like a revenge motive? Did something traumatic happen to them when they were younger? This is, this probably uh, defies that classification because like we get their motive, but then supernatural things, it's, it's more like in the hereditary um, mold or something where you can't escape your past, you know, past trauma or shared um, uh, legacy trauma from from generations past in this case like no matter how much they try to escape what happened to them as kids a mirror (laughs) that with supernatural powers will follow them around and and create chaos in their adult lives as well and that's what's so cool so you know in the preview episode i talked about how i saw this from clinton street video and i kind of went slasher crazy afterwards and kept trying to find something as boogeyman as the boogeyman and something that i think it just really does right in terms of ripping off halloween is it makes it a supernatural thing yep. you know and so many slashers that i've watched and liked don't have a supernatural component and that just kind of it, it it's always uh it, it loses points with me in that i always want there to be a supernatural thing and and i'm okay with there not being but i want it and this one gives it to me, and it gives them to me in a totally different way uh, than Halloween. But I, I was going to say, are you saying the? I mean, obviously, yeah. the longer these movies go on, the more supernatural um, Friday the Thirteenth or Halloween gets, just in terms of keeping the character alive. But oh yeah, there wasn't you. you the the original Halloween is more like a tangible form of 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 pure evil, but not any kind of supernatural power. See, that's what I, or do I think you disagree? It, it makes everybody wonder. And yeah. he is, they talk about the boogeyman. He keeps getting up over and over again. You're, you don't know. You're like, right. is this a human? Is he evil? Loomis thinks, seems to think he's evil. And that's what I think yeah. that this movie does uh, again is we're just doing the boogeyman and the boogeyman is a symbol of evil. That's the villain. And so it's the same thing as Halloween where they're, they're trying to, it's an incarnate of evil. It's just a primal evil I, that's being the villain. I get where you're, where you're coming from thematically. Yeah. They're very similar in that respect, but where um, the boogeyman has some sort of, a cinematic advantage in some respects is the they can have more weirder um kill sequences they can because there's a there's a non-corporeal force that is kind of carrying out these actions so the boogeyman that the, the person that gets killed in the opening scene is sort of like well, we probably shouldn't try to figure out too much of the mechanics of the movie, but no, let's let's go but, there. Let's talk about so what the heck is this movie about? Because yeah. this is weird, <laughs> and this is something that was really fun to see in the audience reactions every single time that I watched it. Is that the reveal in this movie is about two thirds of the way through the movie when you're like, wait what the fuck is this movie about? Yeah. <laughs> and it, it just catches everybody off guard. I mean, you can talk about your reaction, but basically what this movie is about, and hopefully this came through to you, it did not totally come through mm. to me on my first watch. It took several watchings for me to really get what the heck this movie was going on. But what's going on in this movie is um, this this guy gets uh, is uh, sleeping with the, this, these kids' mom, and there's this traumatic incident at the beginning where... Um, he ties up the kid, Willie, 
um, so he can keep doing stuff with the mom. And then Willie gets freed by Lacey and kills the yep. guy. And that all happens through mirror reflection. So yes. the mirror is in the bedroom and sees everything. And there's this superstition that when you break a mirror, that you free everything that it sees. And so then tw- we fast forward 20 years later, Lacey's gets this memor- uh, this letter from her mother saying, I feel like I have the right to see you one last time. That brings back all these traumatic feelings. She's starting to get bad dreams. She's freaking out. And the, the dad, uh, or her husband, Jake, who I fucking hate, <laughs> he's awesomely <laughs> as a terrible husband. Yep. He's great. And he just does the classic shitty trauma thing, which is confront it, confront it. Yeah, fix um, yourself. Exactly. Just pull your bootstraps <laughs> yeah. up and go to your house so he just forces her to go to the house and it's so traumatic for her that she breaks the mirror because she thinks she sees the guy in there thereby releasing everything that the mirror has seen which is this guy's evil and this guy's evil now is the slasher presence that just goes around starts killing people Yes, I guess that's what I and I, I think I got most of that. Maybe they do say maybe something about the mirror superstition, but that's ingrained enough in in it's culture. Subtle. Yeah, yeah, but like I yeah. I guess the distinction I was I was just making was that he a, a physical person doesn't come out of the mirror like a nope. supernatural spirit comes out of the mirror. Yes, and the shards of the mirror like we don't know exactly what the range of the mirror is nope. because like the kid will track a um um like fragment of the mirror in his shoes off to a dock and yeah. then that's close enough for the mirror spirit to kill these kids that are you know necking in the <laughs> in their car or like you know so another there has to be really s- great scene <laughs> So that scene when they, you know, the the skewer scene. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if I mentioned this to you already, but that's famous because William S. Burroughs actually edited that kill sequence. The writer? The writer. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Famous for the cut-up method. He was in the Tropicana Motel. So Uli uh, Lamel f- f- shot this movie in Maryland, and then he just hated New York so much in the winter. It was in November that he just drove all the way to L.A., with the negative in his car and got two rooms in the Tropicana Motel, which was a famous rock and roll, you know, kind of like the Chelsea Hotel. Sure. Um, a lot of drugs going down. And so he and uh, Susanna Love just got two rooms and uh, started editing there, making so much noise with the editing machine that <laughs> William Burroughs was like, what are you guys doing in there? Holy shit. And then he just was like, come on in and help me figure out this kill. And wow. so, yeah, that's that's why it's, and it's, it's one of my favorite kills. I just yeah. really love that in the skewer and he turns and the car door hits him and she makes she the kiss of death yeah i mean uh, we've we've probably given enough hints but i mean do we do we need to literally describe what what happens and that's an that was an incredible anecdote by the way um just kind of there's all these stories in like chelsea hotel style um new york lofts and this is florida but like where um these artists are just colliding during like the the 60s or 70s and like making influencing each other so that's and they're all coming to light right now so that's what's really cool to me is 
that this Blu-ray just came out. The rights are available. The restoration is here. You can stream this on Shutter. And with that Blu-ray, I got Susanna Love giving me 45 minutes interview about how crazy it was to be married with Uli Lamel and make these <laughs> movies. And literally, my partner was telling I was telling my partner last Halloween, and I was watching my Boogeyman Laserdisc, and I was like. We have all these other slashers. We have everything else. Why can't we just have the boogeyman? I want Susanna Love interviews right now. Wow, you and manifested it, it. And it and it happened. <laughs> and then I saw the print and literally yeah. I feel like I conjured this up yeah. and it's it's great. I love the moment in time that we live in right now. But what I'm trying to say is with these new interviews, shit is coming to light. Yep. Just like with hardcore, we're 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 getting deeper into these movies and uh, so one of the stories from the special features these uh, uh, stories from the special features that I thought was really cool that came out was um, so this is I should give a little preface here um, which uh, is that so Uli Lamel uh, also pronounced Lommel but let's we'll call him Uli um, he's working with Fassbender in Germany doing the German New Wave um, and making art house films and he makes this movie in 1973 called Tenderness of the Wolves hmm. um, and it's pretty intense it's about a gay guy who kills teenagers and uh, eats and feeds them to people basically but yeah, it's done uh-huh. in like our house way that's uh, really criti- critically acclaimed and stuff and it makes he makes it a uh, way with he, he makes his rounds with the art house uh, film festivals eventually going to Toronto um, and then he comes to New York afterwards and screens it for Andy Warhol and Andy Warhol um, uh, invites him to a dinner afterwards and at this dinner is Truman Capote, Jackie <laughs> Kennedy, Andy Warhol, and Uli Lamel. Wow. And Andy Warhol apparently doesn't say anything for the entire dinner. He's just staring, observing everybody, all these characters going on and stuff. This is 1977. Um, and after the dinner, uh, he, he just turns to Uli and says, Uli, you're so beautiful. And beautiful people are happy. Are you happy? So that was, wow. that's just my little weird, yeah. it's like, whoa, what's going on? But the rest of the story from that is um, Uli gets married to Susanna Love for the green card so he can stay in New York. And she has um, like oil money or something, but basically just starts back, thinks he's a genius and starts backing his movies. And he makes um, the blank generation with Richard Hell basically documenting CBGB scenes. And he, he basically just falls in with the Andy Warhol and punk CBGB's avant-garde New York downtown scene. Um, and then after uh, blank generation, he makes cocaine cowboys, which is basically him trying to do his own Richard Hell movie thing, um, which Tarantino seems to like a lot, which I don't really, I'll, I'll give it another watch again, but it's okay. But then after that he makes the boogeyman and he's really trying to go back 
back to the tenderness of the wolves shock that he got from that audiences. And that's what he saw Warhol really respond. You know, he just, he, he could see how responsive people were to that. Um, he wasn't like, yeah. it wasn't um, commercial motivation oh, like it, post. Oh, it totally was. Okay. So he was trying yeah. to make a hit. <laughs> Let's talk about the golden age of slashers, as I've conventionally understood it. You, I think everybody has their own little different definitions of it, but this is how it was kind of taught to me. I forget exactly where, but basically we got 1978 to 1983. We have the golden age of slashers, and every year within that has a very different flavor. Um, that kind of builds a momentum upon itself. So 78, we're getting Halloween come out. And right. it becomes the most successful independent film. Uh, Grizzly, 1976 was before that. This is, you know, changes all the studios. So all the studios are just clamoring for the next Halloween. And I always make the analogy, this is like Nirvana, never mind. You know, every little band that had some, you know, a, a plaid flannel shirt suddenly is now on MTV just because the studio the major labels are looking for the next Kurt Cobain. So this is the same thing that's happening with Halloween in 1978. So in 79, the interesting thing about 79 is you don't have that many slashers because it's too quick. The things that get released and picked up are stuff like Phantasm, which is just right. adjacent. It's just a horror movie that's weird and low budget and doesn't have really anything to do with Halloween, but it gets distributed the heck out of it because they're just looking for the next horror movie. So 1980 is really this year when any movie that was made in response to Halloween is actually going to come out. But the tropes aren't in set yet, in place yet. And that's right. the thing that I always kind of tell people is like, the real slasher template model that we all kind of see films harken back to is Halloween, but it's really Friday the 13th. Yeah, because um, the way I understand it, and whether I think this is through Carpenter interviews and and other people talking about it, is <laughs> all the the like tropes that they picked up on in Halloween were uh, incidental and and not intended to have any kind of value judgment if the characters were having sex they weren't going to be punished for for that like the 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 women like talking more frankly and stuff was their attempt to be you know his writing part and producing partner deborah hill being progressive like right. like having these the final girl stereotype obviously you know um no, it's Sean Cunningham who's yeah. really taken those tropes and turning it into a formula yeah. and, in Friday the 13th and giving us the new thing, which I think you talked a little bit about in Mad Men, is you wanted your reveal. You didn't get your reveal. 
where does that reveal come from? It's not really from Halloween. It's really from Friday the 13th, right. um, which I kind of argue is really more from the Jala movies and how that came. And you can see with Friday the 13th part two, that it's very Jalo influenced. And we can talk about that some other podcast, but proto, also- proto slashers are their own genre among themselves. And I love the evolution in the proto slasher up into 1978. I, I, I think like, one thing every time I rewatch Halloween that surprises yeah. me, and I watch it at least you know every October, is the kills aren't gory. The kills are very infrequent. It takes forever right. for aside from the opening scene for anyone else to to get killed, and it's just kind of like it's it's very tense and drawn out, but it's not like trying to be. There's like a. a some quirkiness and 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 Michael dressing up as a ghost and putting on the glasses and like hiding bodies into um, cabinets where they're gonna like fall out, but they're not like the kills themselves aren't aren't Creative. creatively yeah, yeah like uh, brainstorms to come up with weird you know weird kill sequences. So that's another thing that I feel like is a pretty definitive component of a slasher is intentionally over-the-top kills, and Halloween doesn't have that either. And the Boogeyman doesn't have that as much as Friday the 13th. So right, but it, has, it, has it definitely tropes. has its moments. And it does, yeah. and that's the cool thing, and that's what I really love about the Boogeyman, and it has always just been clear to me from the first watch, is that the Boogeyman is the perfect intersection of the art house and the grind house. Hmm. So we're getting a European sensibility but we're also getting those kills. We got the teenagers with the triumph shirt on and they're getting, you know, they're goofy and they're getting killed just like in Halloween. But we also have a really great soundtrack and we're getting, and this is much more apparent in the Blu-ray restoration than on the 35 millimeter, some really beautiful colors and cinematography. So that's really the art house sensibility side to it and the pacing of it. You know, these kills, they don't happen in the first half of the movie, just like in Halloween, it takes forever. You know, it's, it's not like the formula of uh, Friday the 13th. No. And then it, it's not until they go back to their childhood home and unleash the mirror spirit that like now all of a sudden everyone that's currently living in that house, like, um, uh, a sister and her younger brother so some parallels there and and then her friend like we get to see those three people killed in in weird ways and in pretty short succession once but it is it is a long ways into the movie before before shit hits the fan in that respect and the lighting reminds me of uh italian horror or argento with with its its reds and blues and just very unnatural or over the top lighting in a in a sense where something like Halloween even early Friday the 13th is going for a more naturalistic look it's just darkness and or shadows and, and this isn't and, yeah yeah this is not surrealism yeah, yeah which i i always appreciate that's what was so mind blowing when i first started watching italian horror films like not only the the gore and the effects being over the top, but the set design, the it's stylized. heavy use of soundtrack. Yeah, yeah. very stylized. Yep.
Duhamel's agenda here is sort of this new realism. Mm-hmm. And I think it comes across as surrealism, but he, some people have called it hyper-realism. And I think David Lynch also is a partaker of this movement. But, you know, he's, you know, at the beginning of this movie, what's going on is we're getting this sort of weirdly traditional family setting. So on the farm, you know, there's this farm. He's got a John Deere hat on. (laughs) You know, it's like, it's just weirdly traditional. They're going to church, you know, it's and Uli Lamel is kind of as this um, European voyeur into American life. He's sort of interested in doing this uh, study on the American life and the American family. In Virginia or West Virginia, it's set near the Potomac River. Maryland, yeah. Oh, Maryland, yeah. So um, shows how much I know about where I grew up. But um, it is set in kind of like an unusual traditional American um, uh, setting with like they live in an old colonial barn style looking house which like a lot of people have said um is supposed to just be a homage to amityville horror yeah and you know i think the windows the the, before the vinegar syndrome blu-ray was released i feel like the general conception of the boogeyman was it was a blender ripoff where it was taking slasher components of halloween possession components of the exorcist and then the final climactic scene was just kind of amityville horror like Hmm. and trying to turn them all into one thing and i do think that those elements are there but i think that now i can almost see that oh sorry to interrupt you i see that with the end scene maybe the most of any any of those things and i think that the house that they're staying in now that we've learned uh from the special features is just Susanna Love's parents' house or, you know, her uncle's farm. (laughs) You know, it just happens to be in that same, you know, have the windows like Amityville Horror. So they didn't have the money resources to, like, be like, oh, I want to do a house just like Amityville. It just, those houses were just in that style. And that's that's that was a coincidence. So I think there's some coincidental thing. I don't think that the Blender ripoff theory really holds up as much anymore. But I do think that there's obvious elements of mo- of different horror movies going sure. down but i mean the beautiful thing of watching this movie with a crowd of people was just getting to see that moment and there were several and it's not just one moment but when they realized like wait what the fuck did i just come to yeah. wait he's trapped in the mirror they released him from the mirror yeah. he's painting the mirrors black like what is going right. on in this movie and trying to figure it out and then it happens like two-thirds it's not like this big reveal at the end um you know there are some kills you know it's not just lead up and boring it's like it keeps you engaged but it it sucks you into it yeah maybe because you don't immediately know the rules of yeah. of you know like how this is going to work like i was saying like how far the spirit can travel from a mirror fragment like when they break the mirror they take it back to the farmhouse which is a hilariously <laughs> stupid <laughs> <Yes>. idea <laughs> that is ridiculous and amazing yeah because the the husband that you mentioned who is jake. is a jerk yeah jake the jerk is <laughs> like insistent that they can't leave the trauma behind until she's <laughs> dealt with it. So they, he cleans it up and, and brings the fragments. And then when he gets and back, he puts them all he, back yeah, together, which is, which just, is impossible and amazing. Yeah. Like the, um, grandpa or someone else who lives at the, at the house is yeah. just like, get this thing out of here. You get some turpentine and clean those mirrors up. And the next time I come in here, that mirror better be in the garbage. Yeah. Here. Which of course it's not. And, and uh, we don't also know like, 
how much it's controlling the behavior of the characters yeah. until it's super obvious that it's that it they can't like that they are possessed. That's why it very minimal amounts of this movie feel anything like an exorcist level possession. I it, know, it happens right? at the very end, but for the most well, part, it's, also, it's more subtle. The Caradine scenes, which I think really help the movie. Right. I, I, so the you know the scenes with the psychiatrist John Caradine. So basically, what happened was they took the negative to the Tropicana Motel, and they only had sixty minutes. And they're like, "Fuck, that's <laughs> oh, not really? a that's not a movie. What can we do?" And somebody was just doing heroin and was like, "Yo, I know John Caradine." <laughs> and they're like, "Whoa, is he still alive?" And they're like, "Yeah, just give him ten thousand dollars and he'll do it." And so they just went and picked up John Carradine and shot some scenes with him and Susanna Love yeah. um, doing the psychiatrist. And I, you know, rewatching this now, learning that I was like, "Oh wow, they really go together pretty well." And in and, and just with the symbolism of the movie, with the traditional family, you know, then we have the medicine. You know, it's it's kind of like orca where you know it's good to have that sort of scientific figure in play with all the other stuff that's going on yeah and it balances out jake's sort of dismissive reaction to it or you know you know he's just never gonna fully appreciate the trauma that she's been through so having another um stupid figure (laughs) figure there yeah like um and there's just some uh, that's interesting that that was mostly created out of thin air just to pad out <laughs> to pad out the film and one of my favorite lines is in the scene so jake you know eventually gets on Susanna love's side and he just immediately goes to john carradine for help i don't know why he thinks that would be helpful but he goes there and he's like he's like this is what's happening he's released from the mirror this is you know what do you think we should do this is crazy it's real it's yeah. true there is a boogeyman and john carradine just goes let me tell you about a similar incident <laughs> it's just, it's yeah. just like a similar incident has there ever been a similar incident in any movie even like it's just right. such a great He's line yeah and it's just so awesome that it's john care i mean he the guy I mean, it looks like he's 100 years old i mean just you know bravo john carradine yep. for making it through to 1980 <laughs> and I, I guess he was acting for like five more years after wow. this but you know it's just uh, good genes in the carradine sure. family that's what they say yep. um yeah and uh you know uli mel has a good story about him and david carradine and talking about john and stuff so it's just kind of a cool horror lineage that like how did they pad out this movie well they got john carradine and he has actually some really cool scenes I do think that there might be some problems with the boogeyman. So I guess my official stance is I'm not trying to convince everybody that this is a forgotten masterpiece and it's really a five-star movie. You know, I don't think it's better than Halloween. I think Halloween is a total masterpiece and it's, you know, if it was six, if there were six stars, I would give Halloween six stars, you know, Halloween knows exactly what it is and it's focused and it's, it's, you know, if, if you want it to be more of a slasher, want it to be more fast paced, that's that's on you. But it knows exactly what it's going for. 
and this movie is throwing more things at the <laughs> at the wall. And I what I so my stance though is that Boogeyman is a four star movie. I think it's a super strong movie that really just it's not a lost masterpiece, but it it's a deserves a place in the pantheon of OG slashers in the golden age. So I think right up there with Friday the 13th, right up there with Just Before Dawn is another one I think deserves to be up there. But My Bloody Valentine, you know, you could go through and pick your own pantheon of what you think in those years. And I guess we didn't really finish going through the golden age, but 81 is the peak. That's when all of the like, that's when the most are coming out. And then by 82, you're getting those tropes be solidified. And then by 83 is when the sort of self-parodying happens and it gets a little more comical with Sleepaway Camp and then gets reinvented in 84 with With Nightmare. Nightmare. Yeah, Yeah. so that was that. But (laughs) I guess I'm just saying is that this deserves to be a certified cult classic in um we'll talk about this when we get to the box office history and why this hasn't been but that's just my stance is that this is this is this is a strong strong slasher that deserves to be within the pantheon yeah i i guess i evaluate slashers on in the context of what they're trying to be and yeah. they're not trying to be halloween they're they're trying to have disposable characters that you are fine or rooting for getting killed off for the most part. Yeah. And in this case, you actually have a little more um, vested interest and relationship in the brother sister character than you might in, in a lot of uh, Friday the 13th style slashers where it's meant to be immature, unlikable kids going, you know, and, 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 and behaving poorly and getting, punished sort of like more you know um moralistically for their totally. their actions at least that lets the audience off the hook of having to con- uh, confront that you're seeing like good people die yep so and not that you deserve to die for having sex or drinking <laughs> but like at least they're just kind of shithead characters and i really think the boogeyman would be a lot worse off if it didn't have those scenes with the teenagers yeah. on the potomac i really think that's a great addition and i love the line where um he's like uh you know go get the buns from the basket and then give me another cold one <laughs> yeah. while you're there and she's like okay yeah so those <laughs> so hilariously that, bad acting but just really great just that one fun. segment which is only like you know 10 15 minutes of the movie that's the friday the 13th part of the movie within yep. this movie those are the the stereotypical kind of you know um just just aimless teens that in the guys are especially obnoxious She's just going, you know, um, pouring her heart out, trying to make that one hot dog on the grill. <laughs> it's so good. It's I really love that part yeah. much more than I feel like I, I probably should. But it just it just has a soft spot yeah. in my heart. And I, the, I think like the, throws her in the water. I mean, it's just and that's the only thing is I kind of just wish with the boogeyman that while they're doing so the first half of the movie is really like Willie red herring you know he's playing with the tarantula and stuff you right. think that he's the boogeyman he's tra- traumatized by the stuff that's what the movie is trying to take seriously he would be but, michael like yeah, yeah like committed this act as a kid and absolutely and, and either was already fucked up or is now you know unsalvageable because of it yeah and instead of uh um, Captain Kirk mask. He's got a John Deere hat. You know, it's just it, everybody <laughs> yeah. knows that that's not true, and they know that they're in for some weird shit uh, because they saw the trailer. You yeah. know, so it, 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 nobody buys that. And I guess 
my criticism is, and this is just seeing it with several audiences. This is what I'm feeling too, is it would be, it would, I think there should have been maybe one more scene with another group of teenagers in that first half where some kills go down. Well, what about the house? I mean, they we get to see Yeah, that's when it starts. Yeah, yeah. See so one more uh, Yeah, between I think those. yeah, something yeah. like that. It just it, it, I I just it, I feel like it needs something a little more cuz nobody is really fooled by this Willie thing. And that to me seems like the only real component that's it's just uh it doesn't work i don't know but uh i mean i i just don't really feel like though picking apart the movie because i love the soundtrack so much you know it's just to me it doesn't need to be this flawless masterpiece to be one of my favorite slashers you know and and that's what i liked about the 35 millimeter print you know it was faded it didn't need to be the perfect pristine yeah. vinegar syndrome restoration for everybody to get spooked out on halloween you know it was gritty it was grimy it was raw the contrast between the how immaculate the soundtrack comes through in the print versus how flawed um in a endearing way the visuals are yeah is it almost magnifies the importance of the soundtrack totally and also the visuals magnify the surrealism because of some kind of aspect ratio or some kind of distortion going on where David is like four yeah. feet wide and, and something and- <laughs> weird is going on. Yeah. yeah. And also with all the special effects scenes, there's just a strange different aspect ratio yeah. going on. That's I was really happy to see is fixed in the vinegar syndrome, Blu-ray and stuff too. So there, yeah, it's, it's an interesting print. Yep. I'm definitely going to keep it. I'm definitely going to try to play it again for people. Uh, it was really cool to see people's reactions yeah. to it. Um, but another thing you just talked about how strong the score was on the print, something that I think Tim Krogh and also Uli Lamel um, got right that most other people just for some reason, you know, in addition to the, just the dark, deep dark synth was just an easy one for i feel like low-hanging fruit like yeah that's what people want that's what i want another thing that john carpenter does that's awesome is use the music as punctuation for gestures going on for beats within the movie it's not just background ambient stuff it's signals so when they're at the dinner you know when they're eating dinner and Susanna Love is looking at the turkey or whatever, the chicken, and there's she's freaking out it's about reminding the knife. me of a racer head. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. It, she's freaking out about the knife, and then the synth is going crazy. It's supposed to make you think about the trauma and incident. You know, it, yep. it's 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 signaling things and and helps further the movie. And so many other movies I watched, they have an interesting soundtrack and stuff, but the soundtrack and the score isn't interlaced within the action and the drama going in the movie yeah i mean if you can do like a um hard zoom in on something or you you use the camera as a punctuation and and part of this visual storytelling why wouldn't you use the soundtrack i mean you could obviously i don't uh, personally i it's really hard to overdo it if it's if it's good I mean, you could say yeah. that it's a criticism of of Carpenter or something that you're overly reliant on it. Yeah. But I, I, yeah, for my personal taste, I, I would disagree. And then you could do the same. You could say the same for jump scares or musical um, punctuation. You could overdo that in theory, but it should absolutely be in your toolkit. Like, why wouldn't it be?
So, you know, I think some people came to this movie, this screening, you know, not knowing what to expect and, you know, wanting something a little campier and they might have been disappointed or like they might have been, yeah. yeah, or they might have been confused or they might have been pleasantly surprised and exposed to something that I just feel like these types of movies, we don't see a million of them. And I think it's really unique and really strange and really interesting what, you know, Lamel's agenda is here. He's trying to fuse the art house with the grind house and do something crazy, you know, and it, it, it's, it's such a unique vision that he has there that that that's why I just think it's important for people to keep revisiting it. And, and it's interesting to see how the letterbox reviews are starting to change and come in and what types of people are really turned off by it and what types of people are really blown away by it. And so it's, it's within the horror fan community right now i feel like it's a controversial one and, and i'm really excited about that yeah in a good way i mean yeah, people are so obsessed <laughs> with this time period of of horror slasher and totally seemingly endless options but the 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 big hits just just get replayed and replayed over over and over so for one to be like completely new to me and uh, you know like like when we talked about uh, madman i was well aware of it and i feel like the level of ambition here is much higher than what madman was trying to do that was very much in the friday the 13th kind of mold yep. and this is i you know i keep mentioning suspiria which i guess doesn't qualify for this type of slasher but it it's just my sort of visual and in um auditory and cinematic like ideal with yeah lacking plot and and traditional kind of like narrative comfort but using all the other tools at their disposal to to make a like just immersive experience and that's i mean i really think uli knocks it out of the park with that because he knows that's all he has so they came with this movie with no money you know, to make it. And what Uli was famous for doing is one take. So oh. he, he shit talks to Palma. He, he says, <laughs> why are they using so much film? He, he thinks it's insane people doing a second take and he's and they the cameraman have you know keep having to talk him into doing yeah, it maybe that's the why thing. the boom mic was in the frame for all those yeah totally <laughs> therapist scenes yeah totally because <laughs> they yeah he just he thinks he's got it yep. and so he's planned everything out but in that planning it's so much more intense you know he they talk about how he has different canisters with different lengths of film feet, and he knows how much feet he needs for every scene. Wow. And he's bought exactly that much, and he's not going to spend any more on processing than that. And it's just a very punk way of making it. You know, It's just one take, and you're done. Don't overthink it. This is the movie. It's bare bones. It's not about... Um, this nuanced, super critical thing. It's about the raw idea meeting with my stylistic vision. So I'm, I've got that. He's like, I've worked that out. I yeah. know what I want it to look like, and that's what it's going to look like. <laughs> and I get it the first time. Yeah, and I wonder if um, he was just maybe less obsessed with like what range of performances he could get out of actors because i feel like the yeah. reason to do multiple takes well one reason is to nail 
the um, framing and the the visuals of a scene. But the other main reason I think is yep. to 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 dial in a performance, and maybe he just wasn't as concerned with the <laughs> with ex- directing the performances. Improvise and do mm-hmm. different types of things. So we've yeah. talked a little bit about in our different reviews, different directors' approaches to filming the principal photography. And, you know, we had De Palma on one end extreme where he's super meticulous, does a million takes. He has everything planned out to the detail and telling everybody to move, you know, three inches to the right and then hold it for 30 seconds and then drop. You know, he's really anal, a filmmaker. And then we had Jack Hill on the other end, super loosey goosey. You know, uh, he's 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 the anarchist. He's trying to include all of the people in the creation of the work, you know, the yeah, creative like collaborator, an Adam McKay comedy in the modern age, where he's letting the the comedic actors yep. riff and come up with something or Apatow and find it be comfortable editing and and comfortable like you know making it all work together later. And that's and then we got Uli kind of on the other end of the extreme where he's he's not anal like De Palma, but he's doing that same meticulous planning um, and he's not leaving any room for creativity. So it's not like Polanski, who's on the De Palma end of the spectrum. Right, or Fincher. Yeah, and it's and it's not like um, uh, Cassavetes where there's doing all this improvisation and, and loose, you know, Jack Hill style. This is the opposite end where he's just one take. I know what I want it to look. I know what I want it to sound like. I've already thought that through and I don't need to do this a bunch of times. That's a waste of everybody's time. Yeah. Well, I make another movie. I want to make 50. He's like, I want to make 50 movies, not 10 movies. Yeah. And I mean, things have changed dramatically from a technological standpoint yep, totally. to where with digital filmmaking versus actual film, you had all these practical considerations that you had to, to factor in. Like the reel would actually run out and need to need to be changed if the scene was going on for, for a certain amount of time. So I, I think like I'd certainly admire this fluid approach. It's a little more intuitive. It reminds me of like Lynch is so singular but yeah he doesn't he doesn't like direct people in the in the way that a diploma would with like i have one way that it it has to be done it's it's more like i'm going to give you a creative prompt and then and then let you go where so all these yeah. approaches are are fascinating The reasons why I like this movie, we've hit upon so many of them already. The only thing I really have to add, which you haven't talked about, is just Susanna Love. Um, I guess her name is Suki. Also, I think um, Uli called her Pizza Box, which is <laughs> okay. pretty funny. But she's in. she stars in Devonsville Terror, and the next one she's also in Olivia. She's bankrolling a lot of his movies. She's a crucial component. She's co-writing. He can't really speak English very well, so she's writing a lot of the English dialogue. You know, So she sort of deserves a lot of credit here. Um, and I really, you, all those things aside, I just really like her screen presence. Yeah. I think she just has a weird naturalism to her that, you know, I think some people could mistake as just wooden stiffness. Hmm. Um, but I just, I'm interested in just your take. No, well, on, just on that point, I mean, I, I totally agree that she holds, holds the whole movie together from kind of a, an emotional standpoint. Like we know 
David is intentionally wooden and, and repressed and can't speak until the very end. He finally. Are you talking of, about Willie? Willie, sorry. No, I don't know no why problem. I've been saying David. No, that's wrong. <laughs> I love the part when he goes, when he finally speaks and he's like, the well. Yeah. <laughs> the well. Yeah. yeah, obviously, the way to defeat the the mirror demon is to throw it into into the, the well the well yeah. and they were foreshadowing that throughout the whole whole movie i thought either a, a kid was going to fall in the well or it was going to play a crucial role somehow. you're talking about with the mirror kind of erupting into flames and the sinks yeah well there, yeah, there's that I, I they like... are pouring water on the, the the mirror at times and they just the the way the shots of the house are framed, you have to always go past the well and the yeah, kids sort totally. of playing around the well. So um, I, I yeah. would I would say what could be seen as kind of um, slow, methodical pacing for large parts of the movie. The first half especially, right? Yeah, yeah. was actually kind of what worked for me in the yeah. sense of like once you get hooked by that original story... And then you're just kind of like spending time with the the family on the farm. You're getting to know Willie's um, kind of like emotional shortcomings, and totally. and all of that just just leads up to when they do go back to the house and and kind of like things take a take a big turn. Yeah, it goes I, up I, a notch. I just enjoyed the that kind of build up. I mean, it it was. Um, all the all the kind of lighting and, and visuals that, that we've described is what kept me engaged through the slower points of the movie and the soundtrack. But for the most part, I was just invested enough in kind of seeing how these characters, um, are they going to like be able to break free of, of this traumatic, you know, baggage? And to some extent, they get resolution. But, you know, there's also still a fragment of glass somewhere right or it's left behind at the in the graveyard at the end yeah Yeah. so a little bit of a classic slasher cliffhanger there um so yeah i i I loved kind of that we got enough character building and enough and plenty of artistic um cinematic creativity that i was invested the whole time interesting because it seemed like from just people's reactions you know i saw it three times that first half where there's the buildup, seeing the restoration, you just it's just so beautiful. The whole thing and the shots and the bridge scene and all the glittering and everything. It really was just fun and cool to watch in a way that was like Nosferatu when he's going to uh, Dracula's castle at the beginning. It's just cool journey. We're just dwelling within the movie and having a visual, uh, you know, it's just visually appealing and fun. And I felt like in the 35 millimeter screenings, it was really split. There was people who were, um, it was hard to find people who kind of were more like myself who were loving the art house and the grind house. It seemed like there were some people who were like stoked on the first half, the dread part. And then when the, the teenagers show up and the special effects start to happen. They're like, well, this is just low budget now, you know? And then there were other people who were just like, when, when is dream warriors start? You know, <laughs> yeah. when is it, you know, let's kick it off. I want, and they, they wanted, you know, the climactic scene with all the lights and everything. They wanted that the whole time, sure. you know? And so, but they were, I think that everybody was ready to experience something that they hadn't before. And so in the first 35 millimeter screening, you know, the, 
it was less people and everyone was just going bananas. And I was like, oh my God, is this a forgotten masterpiece? I, I, I thought I had, I stumbled onto something really, really crazy and amazing. And it was one of the best screenings I've ever put on. It was really special and amazing. Um, and, um, then I saw the restoration and there were less people, but everyone was just so engaged and it was so beautiful and stuff. And it was especially that first half, like I was talking about, it was really, really great. And then the third screening right before Halloween, I felt like it was just all over spectrums, but it, not everybody clapped like the first screening. Like we had everybody clapping at the end. It was just clear that, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, I saw it with my partner who obviously had seen this movie many times with me, but she was at that first 35 millimeter screening and she was like, that was the best time we've ever watched that movie. Mm. And that's probably the best time we're ever going to watch that yeah. movie. And she was like, I, I, I like this movie more now because of that. And she, she had liked it before, but she was like, I, I can see why you're so darn excited about this movie now. Yeah. So I was at the more measured third screening yeah. that you're describing. I think for my first viewing, that was good because I kind of had like, I wasn't overly swayed in one direction sure. by the crowd reaction where it can be like, if you've seen the movie a bunch of times, um, you know, I want people the more reaction, the better for Blue Velvet if I've seen it 30 times already. Totally. <laughs> Whereas this, it was just kind of allowed me to go into a more hypnotic um, trance-like state yeah. and, and just be swept up in, in the movie. But there was enough reaction and clear. And, you know, people came up to you mostly, but I was standing there after the yeah. movie and, and were complimenting you on just kind of like playing more unusual stuff are you going to show more things on on film and questions like that and people just like that hadn't that had long um um lost memories of this movie when it came out but yeah. were like couldn't remember what they knew about it or didn't know about it that's yep. always a really fun feeling when you like know you saw something tens of years ago and then you get to see it like uh, in a presentation like this is is really exciting he hurt bad children and did terrible things to their mommies but you can't kill the boogeyman now the most terrifying nightmare of childhood returns the boogeyman so let's just talk a little bit about how this movie came out and how it got to today. So it came out um, Labor Day weekend in 1980 um, and was number one for the next three or four weeks. That, this is crazy t to me. I mean, I it wonder is. what else was out in, in theaters. They couldn't <laughs> make but... prints fast enough. Yeah. And the crazy thing about it was it was an independently financed movie that didn't really have a real distribution company behind it. It was the Jerry Gross company that uh, was in the middle of bankruptcy. And consequently, you know, this is the time before computers. So unless you had a big studio with a big legal team, if, you know, somebody paid $7 for your ticket, you know, in, uh, unless you were, had a big studio behind you, the theaters didn't really need to give you that money. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> so basically this movie we've kind of calculated it roughly as making $25 million, but none of that money went to any of the people 
that made it. Oh, interesting. They just, it, the theaters just kept it wait, because okay. they had no incentive to give the money because there was nobody <laughs> going to come collect it. They had no, they're not going to get sued like Paramount or like or never the get, studio they yeah, need to keep working with. with yeah. yeah, exactly. So they <laughs> well, kind of got shafted. Um, but Uli Lamel got big deals from it that he just pissed away. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, Devonsville Terror is basically the follow-up companion piece. Um, I really like that one. You should check it out. Huh. But it doesn't even get a theatrical release, so it, it, it's it's hard it's hard for Uli to swallow this pill. I'm sure, and a lot of his um, work, I think people um, have say is is really uh, suffers after this. I, I, um, but he 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 kind of remains punk, and he he kind of remains uh, virulent and 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 trying to do weird stuff. But um, it's not like he became this underground director that everybody respects. Now yeah. or something, um, so it's sad and interesting the way that it all panned out. What what what? I mean, what was in the air? I mean, I guess we already talked about the context of of post Halloween and 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 whatnot. But like for this, I wonder how it was marketed and whether it was just. I mean, word the of trailer mouth or, is awesome. Yeah, so I really love. I have the thirty five millimeter trailer as well. And I was able to play that for unsuspecting audiences at random times that I was at the theater. Nice. Um, and it's just really cool. And I love the trailer. And I think that really hooked into people. But Willie uh, talks about how he went to grind, uh, different grindhouses and drive-ins and stuff. And it was tearing it up. Yeah, it's just crazy places. that it did that. And it did that, you know, almost immediately. It didn't... It. It got kind of forgotten, I guess, for various reasons, but it yeah. was like somehow a cult classic right off the bat, which is, is, well, is, is wild. The interesting thing, so it, so then it goes into legal turmoil and everyone's mm. trying to fight and see with this money and all this that never really goes anywhere. And then it gets put on the UK video nasties list. So it gets banned in the UK, which helps it to a certain degree get some cult status. And then it goes to wizard video and gets released on VHS. So I don't know if you're super familiar with wizard video, but in case people aren't wizard video is one of the earliest cult video labels that distributed, you know, in 1981 to 1983, um, some of the first time exploitation movies and horror movies on VHS. Um, and now they become super sought after super rare. Um, and the boogeyman was one of the big first titles that they put out. And so everyone just snatched those up. And so mom, pa, they would get that stolen and stuff. If you had a video store that actually still had one of those tapes, (laughs) that was rare. And so basically, you know, in the video revolution, there's sort of two waves, you know, I, and Tarantino talks a little bit about this on his podcast, but they're, they're, they're watching all these cool tapes that came out in the early eighties. They're really well made. They're on heavy tape and stuff. And they're really crazy diverse titles by the end of the video revolution in the late nineties, they weren't putting out all these crazy obscure movies and stuff. It was right, it was really different. Sometimes there was a cyclical nature where movies like Big Wednesday finally did get a VHS and stuff. But it, 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 there's this in-between period where all of those cool tapes dried up in the hands of collectors and are now going for tons of money, even though that we've come full, full circle. There's cool Blu-rays now being yeah. put out. So in a way... It comes out and gets a really cool video release, but that video release is almost just too cool and too limited 
and not by like a big studio or anything. And it consequently doesn't get a wide distribution. So it's cult, it's underground and stuff, but it's not so underground and so loved that it gets a following that's championed by the Gen X generation. So Tarantino, this isn't one of his movies that he's running around screaming about. There's, there hasn't been a champion in the 90s for The Boogeyman. And I think a lot of that is probably to do with Uli Lamel's career. So he just wasn't doing cool stuff where everyone was like, oh, this guy's movie, that was so cool. It's kind of better now that he's sort of faded away into uh, into history a little bit that we can just take a step back and look at the boogeyman and be like, oh, damn, that's pretty damn good. I mean, it, it sounds like you it was tantalizingly close <laughs> to being so many different yep. things for his career and for it could have easily broke through in a, in a more mainstream way, but because of the legal issues and the studio the a smaller you know distribution just like it was in this this is this perfect storm of like it yeah. it being rare enough to be embraced by a cult audience but never you know big enough to reach mainstream audience and then later just kind of largely forgotten yeah and the laser disc is pretty lame uh, the DVD is pretty lame. You know, they just don't look that cool or that interesting. I mean, you see the slip cover on the new Vinegar Syndrome Blu-ray. Damn, that is like, and it's selling out. Like everybody knows that's a hot Blu-ray to have. Um, and so that came out this year in 2023. So this is a year of reckoning. And, you know, I, I, you know, since I started at the Academy, I've been telling people to watch the boogeyman and stuff. And, um, I got, I saw the print was for sale and I just was like, I don't have an option. I got to buy this, yeah. <laughs> you know? And I was, you know, thinking like, Oh, am I just going to do like a secret screening this October? I had no way of really legally making this happen because of all the fraught stuff until vinegar syndrome figured it out and got the rights made available. So I bet that some of this has to do with Uli Lamel passing in 2017 mm. and then the pandemic and a lot of stuff finally getting sorted out. Um, but uh, whatever happened, I really appreciate the Vinegar Syndrome Blu-ray. To me, it's the definitive way to watch it. But I think that if anybody still has the Wizard video, that's really beautiful and really cool. So you should treasure that. Yeah. It's, it's not something that everybody can just go and get right right um well that's that was insightful to me just because if you asked me like what my prediction was of of <laughs> how many weeks this spent at number one at the box office i would have said zero of course uh, i mean just because of yeah it's hard to put myself back in the mindset of an audience goer in 1980 even if i loved halloween right like to understand where people actually going to seek out all these um you know uh rip-offs or attempted you know like cash grabs at the genre totally so. and it's just crazy to think that indie cinema was so strong back then yeah that they could take over and they were regularly taking over yeah. you know it yeah was, it's super super kind of heartening or interesting just to think that audience that that many people saw it that when it when it first came out in theaters the, a lot of those people are still alive and theoretically would be yeah. aware of the new like um uh resurgence of it but i wonder 
yeah, it'd just be interesting to, to hear from the people that were in that original um, uh, wave of audience goers. Yeah, and it's it's almost like a reverse cult movie. You know, we think of a cult movie, didn't do anything, it tanked, yeah. flopped, and then they built up a cult over time, and now everybody exactly. sees the beauty. And this is the opposite, where it, it seemed like a one-hit wonder and then faded into obscurity, but now we can look back at it and see some amazing, innovative ideas that it had. And, you know, the soundtrack has been released. So that was another big thing for me is in 2012, that's when the LP got reissued. Um, and that is one of my prize, you know, horror soundtracks. And hopefully that'll get reissued again. But that was pretty limited as well. But it did make a the, the buzz did come around again in 2012 on what is this boogeyman movie, you know, and I had just seen it a couple, you know, a time, times at Clinton street and stuff. So, and it has a buzzy name to it, you know, the boogeyman, yep. it's a very memorable poster and stuff. And that was really cool to display. So I loved promoting this movie and I could keep talking about it on and on and on. But if you haven't gotten a chance to see it, we probably just ruined the whole thing for you. So I'm <laughs> I don't sorry. actually know if we could or did because yeah it's yeah, an experience it, it is it really isn't like spoilery um sensitive in, in in any way in my opinion and the name is almost incidental <laughs> <Totally>. <laughs> to the, the plot of the movie it's not candy man it's not um you know bloody mary where you're summoning intentionally like a, a, a pop culture demon it's it's very much its own its own thing well, thanks everybody for coming out and supporting that movie and also all the movies in October and every month. Um, and thank you so much for listening. This has been really fun and uh, we hope to keep doing it for you all. Yeah. Um, follow along by searching Academy Revival Podcast on Apple um, or Spotify or anywhere else. And um, that's but it for now. now. Thanks. Another stranger seems to want you to ignore his dreams as though they were the burden of some other.